Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us today for our event, Old Bullies, New Toys, Confronting Iran and North Korea, well, we will focus on the threats posed by nuclear weapons in the hands of these two rogue states and how missile defense can play a role. We are honored to be partnered with the Ronald Reagan Institute to host this, post this important event. In a moment, I'll turn it over to Roger Zakheim for his remarks. This is a two-part event. First, Roger Zakheim will discuss these issues with Representative Mike Turner, and then that will be followed by an expert panel discussion. Well, while North Korea and Iran pose significant regional threats to U.S. interests. It is their acquisition or potential acquisition of nuclear weapons which elevates the risk to a strategic level. To discuss these threats and solutions, we have a great group of leaders and experts to share their thoughts, and this promises to be an exciting session. I encourage you to submit as many questions as you want in the question block, and we will get to them in the time that we have available. And now, I will hand the floor over to Roger Zakheim, the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Ronald, uh, uh, Roger, over to you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. Uh, it's great to be with you and our friends at the Heritage Foundation um, and to be with our guests who I'll uh, introduce now. First elected to Congress in 2002, proudly representing Ohio's 10th district, which includes uh, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, Congressman Turner has uh, been on the Armed Services Committee, uh, where he serves currently as a ranking member on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, and also in the past has served as chairman of that Very subcommittee, which includes uh, jurisdiction over the nation's nuclear arsenal, uh, the Department of Defense intelligence programs, and the missile their so, missile defense system. So uh, he certainly has. Uh, the experience and the uh, jurisdiction from uh, the subcommittee to cover all the topics included uh, in our conversation today. Uh, prior to coming to Congress, he served as mayor of Dayton uh, for eight years, and I had an opportunity for, I think, all eight years that I was on the Armed Services Committee professional staff uh, to support uh, Congressman Turner. And my memory is, is that if you are going to uh, support Congressman Turner, you better knew, know your file because he was on top of the issues. No doubt all of us will see that today. Uh, so Congressman Turner, welcome. Uh, I think we'll just jump right into it. Well, I'm hopeful uh, the Congressman can hear me. Um, and I thought we'd start with the defense budget. I know he's sitting in Capitol Hill at the moment. Uh, we're the president's skinny budget arrived just last week, and many of those watching today are thinking about the national defense budget uh, that the Biden administration uh, will send over and its impact on our national defense uh, and the priorities uh, that we will be discussing today when we think about Iran and North Korea and our nuclear weapons arsenal, as well as uh, missile defense. So I think I see Congressman Turner. There we go. Uh, 
Congressman, I don't know if you caught it, but I gave you an elaborate introduction fitting of a former chair and current ranking member of the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces. Well, Roger, I just want to thank you for your leadership. Um, you were a great leader on the Armed Services Committee as you staffed and, and mentored, I think, all the members there, and of course, your continued leadership uh, at the Ronald Reagan Institute. Uh, we appreciate your contributions uh, to the uh, discussion of national security and uh, and really your focus in trying to make sure that people have the information that they need about the challenges to our nation. Well, well thanks for that. And, uh, you know, uh, love engaging with you. And I was uh, sharing with the audience how uh, you're one of those members of Congress that know your file and, and know the details and, and take the portfolio so seriously. Uh, I want to, uh, we'll jump to nuclear deterrence and, and missile defense, but taking a step back, uh, you've always been a leader on the defense budget and top line. Uh, last, you were one of the first to kind of forewarn the Biden administration that, uh, you know, they have to bring in a strong national defense budget. Uh, you stated that President Biden should put American national security interests first by following the advice of military experts as he prepares the details of his budget proposal. You've seen there's a $750 billion request just counting the 051. Um, how do you feel about that budget specifically? Is it adequately in your mind going to fund uh, our missile defense programs and nuclear modernization? Well, we'll have to see the final numbers as to what they do with respect to nuclear modernization and missile defense, but certainly the top line numbers are, are worrisome. Um, all of our military leadership has indicated we need a steady three to five percent growth uh, in military uh, spending in order to be able to accomplish what we need to in national security. As you're well aware, not only have we had to go back uh, and try to backfill, if you will, so that we can achieve the readiness that's necessary that we were losing during the Obama administration and sequester, but we've had to take up the modernization programs that were put on hold during that period, but then also you know, to go into the next generation of modernization as a result of what we see our near-peer adversaries doing. If you look at what China and Russia is doing, and the um, certainly what uh, you look at the equipment that's being amassed on the border of Ukraine, you can tell that uh, the United States has much work to do uh, in going to that next level of modernization. And that's going to require sufficient funds on the top line uh, so that we can invest not just in our military today, but in the future. Um, I want to dive into the nuclear modernization piece, a slice of what you just referenced in terms of national defense priorities. You joined with Ranking Member Rogers. Uh, in a letter to President Biden saying now is the time to prioritize long overdue investments required for the DOD, including uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration, which of course resides in the Department of Energy, saying that we have regrettably allowed much of our nuclear deterrent to atrophy. There is movement within uh, the Congress, uh, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, um, you know, I think has skepticism about all three legs of the triad, perhaps uh, favoring investment uh, in a dyad, just the uh, the undersea uh, submarine boomer um, uh, uh, launched a uh, uh, nuclear weapon, as well as the um, tactical and the, the bomber. So what is your view uh, in terms of the nuclear deterrent and the need for all three legs of the triad? Right. So, well, first, let's just deal with the triad itself. And, and I think the most important aspect of the triad is that anyone who proposes going to a dyad has the assumption that our submarines will be stealth forever. And you and I could wake up one day and, to, and, and on that day uh, find that suddenly our, our subs are completely discoverable and the vulnerability in the system 
uh, that we would have would, would be uh, unacceptable and certainly would not deter our adversaries. It's incredibly important that we have all three legs of the triad to be able to have that credible deterrence. Remember, deterrence is about keeping peace. It's about keeping, uh, you know, avoiding nuclear war, avoiding conflict, conflict with major nations. And so that's why it's that important that it be um, you know, reliable and um, certainly perceived uh, by our adversaries as, as being a, a credible threat. Um, the other aspect that, that we have here is that there really is a significant uh, uh, you know, remnant in Congress from the Obama uh, rhetoric of going to nuclear zero that still sees our nuclear uh, forces as a provocative force and as opposed to a peacekeeping force. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the movement for unilateral disarmament continues. We had uh, motions in our last National Defense Authorization Act um, debates where they would have dismantled our modernization. Uh, we are in a critical path right now of uh, needing to modernize uh, the nuclear weapons that we have deployed, or we will cease to be able, including our ally, the UK, who's dependent upon the United States, will cease to be able to continue to have that credible uh, deterrence deployed. So let's talk about the deterrence, and obviously that's the role of the triad, and I take your point that uh, we can't just rely on the dyad uh, to, to achieve that level of deterrence. Um, you know, Iran and North Korea are the focus of our, our, of our event today, uh, in your mind, I think are deterred by our nuclear capability. Um, you know, Senator Warren, uh, when she was running for president, advocated for a no first use policy, um, and then the Biden administration recently put out their interim national security guidance, which said that, you know, we will take steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy. So both from a no first use policy advocated from Senator Warren, as well as uh, the interim national security guidance, which the Biden administration recently uh, put forward, I'm curious to get your view how that is being interpreted by a North Korea and an Iran, and whether or not you believe that um, this would cut against that deterrent uh, and increase the risk um, of Iran and North Korea threatening our forward deployed forces and our friends and allies. So, Congressman, I was uh, just referencing um, two things that have happened during the camp, uh, presidential campaign and recently. Senator Warren calling for a no first use policy and the interim national security guidance uh, calling for a reduction in the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy. And I want to get your view on whether Iran and North Korea and how they react for it and to what it, how it impacts the deterrence that you just were sharing with us is, is kind of vital uh, to national defense. Right, right. Well, let me apologize. Obviously, here on Capitol Hill, we're having difficulty with our internet connection. So thank you for um, tolerating that and letting me sign back on. I'm a couple playing times. the role of senator here. I'm really filibustering. I'm putting uh, the audience to sleep, so hopefully you can wake them up. <laughs> so there is no one who's an adversary to the United States who's going to be deterred from any action that we take to limit um, our nuclear uh, policy and our nuclear uh, forces that are deployed as a as as a um, as a backstop uh, for the United States. Uh, whether or not we've reduced our numbers, whether or not we have uh, removed nuclear weapons from from areas or whatever policies were in place, they, they have had no effect to cause others to similarly disarm or to um, not seek nuclear weapons. It is folly to think that some stated policy 
um, of no first use uh, is going to cause anyone who's an adversary to the United States to do something that's going to make us more safe. And that's what this is all about, right? How are we more safe? Um, and so uh, it, it's um, you know, it's a meaningless debate that I hope never takes hold here uh, and never wins a majority. Um, one, uh, even if if uh, even if we did intend it, I don't think our allies would uh, would um, would feel comforted, and I think our adversaries uh, would would not feel deterred. So, um, in both areas where we, nuclear forces have an impact, uh, we would be diminishing our effect. I want to jump to North Korea. One of the things I recall having opportunity to work with you when when I was on the staff uh, and you were leading uh, the Strategic Forces Committee um, was that within your district, uh, within Wright Pat, you have NASIC, and you always had a really good insight into how our our, our military uh, understood the threats um, posed by our adversaries, uh, and you always seem to be the one who had the most polished and and most sophisticated understanding, really from a military standpoint, uh, what our adversaries were trying to do. Uh, give me your take just on North Korea and 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 their nuclear weapons program uh, and, and, and ballistic missile uh, uh, program. They had a test recently, just last month, um, and you know confirmed what a lot of analysts, some of those who would be uh, on the next panel, thought that that North Korea would test Biden early in his administration. Um, just give me a sense of what what they're seeking to achieve, and then we'll talk about a U.S. response. Right. So if you look at what North Korea has currently uh, sought to, to to both develop and then deploy, um, they're looking uh, for their ICBM capability that would hold the United States at risk. They're now looking to put nuclear weapons on submarines that would further allow them uh, to uh, put uh, both the United States and our allies at, at risk. Um, you know, the Trump administration, when they first were, began to deal with uh, the North Korea threat, uh, they understood that there would be no nuclear North Korea without China and China's approval and consent. So they they put pressure on China. They identified it directly that uh, China needs to intervene. Uh, they put pressure on North Korea, understanding that um, North Korea feeling that they could be imminently threatened, uh, that you could perhaps bring them to the table and in looking at ways to try to uh, restrict uh, both through uh, sanctions and technology restrictions their ability to advance. Um, I hope the Biden administration uh, does see uh, North Korea as a continuing threat as they continue to advance both the capabilities, their number of nuclear weapons. Um, their uh, their intention of holding the United States at risk is, of course, an, an intention uh, to be able to and in fact, deter us and or place the United States at risk for other interests that they might have, including putting South Korea at risk. So let's go to the flip side of it. All right, that gets on the intent side. Uh, the recent Reagan National Defense Survey, you may recall we do this annually and we release it at the Reagan National Defense Forum. The survey found that uh, if the United States suspected North Korea was going to launch an attack against the U.S., 78% of Americans support working with allies to prevent that attack from happening and even using force if necessary. Because we're going to focus on missile defense and, and other things, uh, how capable are we of defending ourselves against an ICBM attack uh, from North Korea? I mean, to what extent uh, do we have the capabilities in place today uh, to respond to an intercontinental ballistic missile attack should it happen from uh, North Korea. It looks like they're you're having some 
technical uh, problems there, but uh, we'll we'll just pause as uh, as we get those resolved and pick up the discussion um, regarding North Korea and our ability to respond to an ICBM attack. Can hear you? Yeah. Yeah. So. I just, uh, so we've gone low tech now. Uh, this is now off of an iPhone. So sorry about that. <laughs> Apparently not reliable up here on Capitol Hill today. Well, uh, but, I, I uh, appreciate the resilience and, and uh, the entrepreneurship of, of you and your team to, to figure out a way to make this work. Great job here. So I'm sorry, where were we? Well, I'll bring you back. It's exciting stuff. When I last left you, we were talking about North Korea. Uh, you were talking about their intent and capabilities they're developing. And I shared a, a data point from our National Defense Survey, all of which was to ask you, um, what is our capability uh, today in terms of being able to defend ourselves or for deployed forces or just uh, the homeland uh, against an ICBM attack from uh, the Hermit Kingdom? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, our, our ground-based mis ground missile defense system uh, was put in place as a result of the uh, North Korea uh, threat. Um, that remains today uh, a, a workable system uh, that can give us some coverage and protection. Certainly our Aegis Ashore uh, uh, and um, system that we played in Europe has been in response to the Iranian uh, evolving threat. And then, of course, the Aegis that we have on ships is deployable and maneuverable and can also have some effect uh, to hopefully uh, affect um, uh, upon launch. Uh, the real key here um, is that we need to do more. Uh, with, when missile defense was first proposed, uh, people believed it was going to be provocative uh, and that it was going to cost too much and not work. Well, Israel really has shown us that it's not provocative, it's actually de-escalatory. It gives people space as you defend yourself from oncoming missile attack. Uh, two, it does work. Um, and, and three, it is uh, certainly um, the cost is much lower uh, than, than, under, than absorbing uh, an attack from, from a conflict. In nuclear weapons, we don't really have any margin of error. So it's even that much more critical and that much more important that we have capabilities to be able to defend the United States. Um, now, again, there has been this stasis uh, in the US Congress in fully committing to the deployment and to the funding uh, of missile defense technology, advancing missile defense technology. There are a number of things that we need to take the next step to, uh, including in looking at what space-based uh, assets that we may need, uh, additional uh, corrected energy, are just on the floor, able to be developed. So we have assets today, um, but the threat is evolving. Um, and at the same time, uh, we do have the ability with the appropriate investment to significantly advance uh, the defense of the United States. I wanted to ask you just a follow-up on, on, on some of the technologies you were just referencing uh, and to look at them through the lens of how do we use missile defense to be a cost-imposing uh, kind of capability. And, and by that, I mean, you know, I think of missile defense as it really buys you time. Uh, in addition to the deterrence, which you've just articulated, but in the event an adversary is shooting something at you, you can go ahead and uh, immediately defend yourself, protect your four deployed forces, your allies, friends, or the homeland. And then while you've achieved that protection from missile defense, then your offensive assets can go ahead and take out the source of the attacks. Uh, is the rudimentary basic concept of a missile defense. Uh, the, the question is, is there a way to make it more cost imposing? Because you can't uh, right now, it doesn't make sense for us to just continue 
firing off those, uh, you know, the, the missiles for, for defense purposes because they just cost so much. Though you mentioned the Israelis uh, have figured out ways, at least uh, for protecting their citizens in and around Gaza, where they've brought down the cost. So talk to me a little bit about missile defense and your hopes and aspirations for being uh, more of a cost-imposing strategy. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that you just pointed out is, is really important. People need to, to, to take that next step. And that is, you know, it, if, if an adversary gets to the, to the step of where they're going to be targeting the United States and then launching, um, at that point, not only do you defend, but you also have the ability to take out the remaining assets that, that are a threat to the United States. That is incredibly important because at that point, you know, their, their intent uh, is, is well known and attack has ensued. And you have the ability then to defend the United States by actually attacking the, the person who would uh, subvert our ability for missile defense to work. Uh, but in all of this, um, the effort is to give you that space so that uh, you're not in a position where you have to attack. Um, and it, you know, we've seen North Korea march weapons to the launch pad and declare their intention to attack both the United States and our allies. And we had, we with without missile defense, we would absolutely have to preemptively uh, take out those assets. With missile defense, we have the ability to to wait. Uh, and in this instance that they that I'm speaking of, they actually then you know, move the missile back. Um, the um, that gives us the space to to not cause an escalation of the conflict. That's a great point in terms of kind of how missile defense uh, advances peace, sustains the peace. I mean, kind of going to some of the remarks you made earlier in our conversation. Um, we have just a few minutes left, Congressman, and I I want to jump to Iran, but before we do that. Um, I did want to get your take on Guam and a threat posed uh, to Guam by China. This recently was uh, kind of in the news um, and lawmakers were pressing uh, the presumptive next commander of Indo-PACOM uh, as the need for uh, missile defense to protect our four deployed forces in Guam. Uh, can you just add some color on that and, and tell, give us what your view is on that? Okay, I, I don't know if you can hear me now, um, but I think you were asking me about Guam and missile defense. You got it. Yes. Okay. I, I think in all areas, certainly in the uh, issue of missile defense capabilities, we need to increase those capabilities and deploy them. We certainly saw in Iraq as we were looking at Iran attacking our forces that you know the concern of the lack of deployment of missile defense assets. Certainly, Guam is an area that we know we have an adversary that is, is targeting the area. Um, and we need to, to bolster those defenses. I think really in, in all areas, if we increase our capabilities, increase the number of assets that we have and increase their deployment, we, we will deter um, the adversary, not just keep our forces safe, because if they actually know, if our adversaries know that they're not necessarily going to be successful, uh, they may pause. All right, we're gonna jump two questions on Iran and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. And uh, so grateful to you, Congressman Turner, for. Uh, doing this event with us, particularly with Capitol Hill throwing you some curveballs in the Wi-Fi today, so stick with us just a little bit longer. Um, on February 23rd of this year, uh, General John Hyden, who's the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that our national defense's capability is really focused on North Korea, uh, not on Russia, not on China, uh, and not on Iran. With Iran developing, constructing underground ballistic missile sites just 500 miles away from Kuwait, where we have 
foreign deployed for forces, some 13,000 or so there. Um, are you concerned? Do you think we need to be focusing more on missile defense uh, to respond to the Iranian threat and the exposure of our uh, foreign deployed for forces and, of course, our friends and allies? Yes, absolutely. Um, in addition to giving greater protection for the United States mainland, um, I had uh, I authored the legislation to create a missile defense site, which would give us the ability to look, shoot, look. Uh, and of course, now we're looking as to ways in which we can ground-based uh, missile defense systems with Aegis support here, um, as we also do uh, bolstering those that we already have on the European continent. Um, the, um, we we can't wait um, until the adversary is placing us at risk. We already know that they're developing missile technology. And of course, now Iran has announced they're up to 60% enrichment, 90% being uh, grade level uh, for a weapon. Uh, we need to make sure that we move quickly. Uh, last question uh, before we, we have to wrap up, but it goes to where you just left off with uh, Iran now looking to uh, go full speed ahead on their nuclear weapons program. and uh, President Biden's Iran envoy, Rob Malley, recently said in an interview that um, the maximum pressure campaign has failed, uh, referencing the Trump administration campaign uh, to place maximum pressure on Iran. It was a failure, a predictable failure. It hasn't made life any better for the Iranian people. It hasn't made life any better for the U.S. and the U.S. and the region. And I'm still quoting here, hasn't brought us any closer to this better deal that President Trump spoke about. Give me your view. Are we better off because of maximum pressure? What's your take uh, on Rob Malley's quote, which I just shared? Well, I, you know, of course, it's, it's absolutely wrong, um, but it, it, it won't advance us if the Biden administration immediately concedes. And that's what they've done in trying to re-enter the flawed Obama uh, JCPOA. Um, the agreement had critical provisions that were limited in time. It did not include missile technology that could reach the United States. It had a limited inspection regime, and it didn't include their malign activities in the area. This administration's rush back into that deal makes us less safe. Um, if Iran wants uh, concessions in sanctions and um, you know, to, to re-engage uh, both with the United States uh, and with the other signatories, JCPOA, uh, they need to do so by coming back to the table and renegotiating the deal. Conceding, though, will not get you concessions. Uh, and that's, of course, how the Obama administration almost began by saying, well, we got the deal we could get. With, with um, you know, We need the deal that will make us safe. Uh, and, and Iran needs to be placed in a position where that deal is of great interest to them also. Uh, we'll leave it there, conceding without making concessions. Uh, Congressman Turner, we thank you for your time today, uh, your expertise. Uh, and appreciate your leadership in the U.S. Congress on these issues. Now we'll go to the Heritage Foundation Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense Policy Analyst, Patty Jane Geller, to lead the second portion of our event today. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much, Roger, and thanks so much to Congressman Turner for that, that awesome discussion. Um, so now we're going to turn to our panel of experts who will get to dive a bit more uh, deeply into these issues. Uh, I'm Patty Jane Geller, as Roger mentioned, and I'm a policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and joining me today to discuss North Korea, Iran, and potential responses are three experts on these topics. Uh, so now I'd like to invite our panelists to join us on screen so I can introduce them to you. First, we have Bruce Klingner, a Heritage Foundation senior fellow and one of the country's top experts on North Korea, having covered it extensively during his time at the CIA. 
Bruce will be getting us smart on the challenges that emanate from the Korean Peninsula. Next, we have Peter Brooks, a Heritage Foundation Senior Fellow, who will be stepping in for uh, David Albright of the Institute for Science and International Security. Uh, David was delayed in, in, returning, in returning from Europe, so we're grateful that um, Pete can step in, and that's also why you have me filling in as a moderator today. Uh, then we'll hear from Tom Carrico, a Senior Fellow at the International Security Program and Director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Tom will give us some thoughts on countering threats that come from North Korean and Iranian missiles and nuclear weapons. So we're going to start with opening remarks from each of our panelists about uh, five to 10 minutes, and then we'll move to a moderated discussion where I will field questions from the audience uh, that you can continue to submit throughout the event. So uh, with that, Bruce, whenever you're ready, please start us off. All right, well, thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back at Heritage, uh, if only virtually with my colleagues and my uh, good friend, Tom Carrico. Um, you know, in looking at North Korea, one thing I've discovered over the years or, or decades that I've been looking at it uh, is that oftentimes experts will underestimate or even downplay North Korea's nuclear missile and cyber capabilities um, without getting into the nomenclature of the missiles or missile ranges, uh, but sort of more of at a strategic level. I, I think it's important to, to focus on what North Korea has accomplished in just the last few years. They've accelerated the development, the production, and the testing of nuclear weapons and missiles, including testing a hydrogen bomb. They created a new generation of more advanced, more accurate, and more survivable missiles for all rangers. And, and that escalates the nuclear threat against South Korea, Japan, US bases in Okinawa and Guam, uh, and the continental United States. North Korea has also developed uh, mobile land-based and sea-based missile systems that are harder to detect and target. They've produced several different solid fuel missiles that reduce the time necessary for launch. Uh, and that constrains the warning time for the US and its allies and able to respond. They've developed short range missiles with a greater capability to evade allied missile defenses in South Korea. And they have submarine launch ballistic missiles and they're developing uh, new ones that would threaten South Korea's exposed flanks. Because right now, South Korea doesn't have uh, missiles on their Aegis-class cruisers that can defend against ballistic missiles. The existing SM-2 missiles can only defend against anti-ship missiles. And they have ICBMs that can target all of the continental United States, and they are now working towards multiple re-entry re vehicle capability. Uh, and that's very worrisome because, as we heard the congressman say, we have only a limited number of ground-based interceptors, which are deployed in California and Alaska. Uh, and so if North Korea has multiple warheads, as Kim Jong-un said he is working towards, on ICBMs, that along with another development we saw recently at a recent parade, where they now can indigenously produce these very large transporter erector launchers for their ICBMs, and before they were limited to six very large Chinese logging trucks that they had purchased and converted to carry ICBMs, so now if they can send more ICBMs out into the field because of their own indigenously produced launchers and uh, have multiple warheads, that could risk overwhelming the US ground-based interceptor uh, ability to defend the continental US because the US has said it may fire multiple, perhaps four each at each in incoming North Korean missile or warhead. The uh, North Koreans have also practiced missile launches under wartime conditions. They've fired multiple missiles from numerous locations throughout the country. 
And they've simulated and announced that they were simulating nuclear air bursts over South Korea and Japan. And they've conducted salvo launches of several missiles simultaneously. Now, all of these new missiles that have been deployed, as well as even more missiles that we've seen in their October and January parades that will continue to be developed, uh, they risk overwhelming the, or where they have overcome the shortcomings of their predecessors and now pose a far greater threat to allied forces, including our missile defense systems. So Pyongyang's evolving nuclear and missile forces increasingly provide the regime with the ability to conduct a sur sur uh, sur surprise preemptive first attack, a retaliatory second strike, and battlefield counterforce attacks. And Pyongyang's continuing development of nuclear missile programs beyond what would be required for a deterrence suggests the regime is striving for a warfighting capability and also its warfighting strategy. And this all puts allied forces at risk. It augments the danger to the continental U.S. and it degrades the military responses to North Korean actions. So it also undermines the effectiveness of existing war plans such as Op Plan 5015, which is the Allied response to a, a all-out North Korean attack. Uh, and through its cyber capabilities, North Korea has gained access to that war plan. It also raises the potential for greater regime willingness to engage in even more provocative behavior, as well as coercive diplomacy towards South Korea and Japan. And the ability to hit the continental U.S. with nuclear weapons, including hydrogen bombs, could inhibit U.S. responses or exacerbate uh, existing allied concerns about the viability of the U.S. extended deterrence guarantee. What we've been increasingly hearing from our South Korean and Japanese colleagues is, you know, would you really put your own cities at risk on behalf of theirs? Uh, would you sacrifice San Francisco for Seoul or would you sacrifice Toledo for, for Tokyo? So South Korea and Japan have already been questioning our commitment uh, and such misgivings could lead Seoul to be more accommodating to Pyongyang uh, or either nation to go down the nuclear path themselves. Now, just quickly, what are the prospects for talks? Well, right now, the Biden administration is completing its policy review on North Korea. We don't know the parameters of it, uh, but we have a few knowns. We, we know that they will go back to a bottom-up approach where you don't have a summit meeting uh, for show that you actually have to have progress at the working level. Uh, towards a denuclearization agreement before you have a summit, uh, and also that there will be a more positive view of U.S. Uh, allies and our approach to our alliances. Uh, things that we don't know are what would be the acceptable parameters of a denuclearization accord for the Biden administration, and, and also how firmly will they enforce U.N. resolution sanctions as well as U.S. laws. What we've seen under successive U.S. administrations, Republican and Democrat, uh, is not even fully enforcing our own laws uh, against Chinese and North Korean and other entities uh, which are committing money laundering crimes on U.S. soil and U.S. banks uh, and other violations of U.S. law. So uh, we, we have a, an expectation that North Korea will do something very provocative in the next few months because historically they've always done something big early on in a U.S. and a South Korean administration a nuclear test or an ICBM test. They did it for President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, as well as South Korean presidents. So things may get uh, higher tensions on the Korean Peninsula within the next few months. Thanks very much. Excellent. Thanks, Bruce.
Um, now I'll turn it over to Pete to discuss Iran. Are you on, are you on mute, Pete? I can't hear you. There we go. Okay. There we go. Sorry. Thought I'd clicked it. Anyway, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Patty Jane, for uh, sitting in for me as, as moderator. And uh, I apologize to the audience that uh, David Albright of the good ISIS, uh, as they as they note. In fact, I think that's his Twitter handle, at the good ISIS, um, is uh, isn't with us today to talk about uh, to talk about Iran. Uh, but I'll do my best to uh, to fill in for uh, fill in for him. Uh, and there's plenty to say about Iran, as you as you all know. And in my estimation, Iran is really an, an increasing threat to international security from its steadfast support of. of international terrorism to his desire to dominate the, the Middle East. But in the limited time I have today, let me quickly focus on its nuclear and missile and missile programs. On this issue, I think there's reasons to be deeply concerned, uh, just as Bruce was talking about North Korea. Uh, news out today, I mean, there's never a boring day when you're dealing with Iran. Uh, they talk about they're going to triple uh, uranium production, uh, and they're also going to increase uranium enrichment from 20% uh, up to 60%. Uh, and as you all know, uh, that you know you're on the way to 90%, which is considered to be weapons grade. Of course, talks are going on in Vienna uh, with the United States playing an indirect role. They're certainly present, but they're not present at the table with the Iranians, uh, which could mean a return under the Biden administration to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA or, or nuclear deal, whatever you prefer. And I think a return to that to that uh, that plan, the JCPOA, would would be a mistake. So I'll be upfront about that. I mean. Doing so, in my estimation, would reward a hostile dictatorship that has uh, repeatedly reneged on its non-proliferation commitments and pocketed past concessions without uh, moderating its aggressive behavior, international behavior. But why am I concerned about the JCPOA? I think it's worth reviewing it uh, since there's been so many of them since going back to 20, 2018, 2019. Uh, one of the big problems is that key provisions of the JCPOA sunset, that is they, they expire. Um, the JCPOA did not end Tehran's nuclear program and only slowed it down. As I like to say, we added speed bumps, but no stop signs. Iran has not sworn off uh, you know, its nuclear program in perpetuity. Uh, for instance, major uranium enrichment restrictions that are central to producing uh, the fissile material for a nuclear weapon begin to expire at the 10-year mark. Well, I also have to remind people that that was going back to 2015. We're already six years into that 10 years. So we're talking about 2025 and Iran will be able to move forward quite significantly with its uranium enrichment and other uh, nuclear activities. The deal doesn't also allow military site inspection. I mean, I think Bruce will, as a former, somebody involved in arms control will, will appreciate this. I mean, shockingly, the JCPOA doesn't allow any time anywhere inspections, which I think is a key verification tool, especially when you're dealing with a country such as Iran. Iran has made its military bases off limits. Uh, of course, the IRGC is involved in the nuclear and missile programs. Um, and of course, a military base is a logical place for Iran to build a nuclear weapon. I mean, this doesn't inspire confidence considering Iran's record on deceit on non-proliferation matters. I mean, think about it, their, their signature of the, the non-proliferation treaty and you know the fact that they were cheating on that for many, many decades, actually. There are still questions out there about the possible military dimensions, also known as the PMDs, uh, that remain unresolved uh, through the IAEA. Uh, Ron was supposed to be completely transparent with the IAEA about its earlier nuclear weapons work 
you know, things that precede 2003, where the intelligence community has tossed around the idea that maybe Iran stopped its nuclear weapons development program, not its nuclear activities, but its development program on a bomb, uh, that you need this sort of thing to be able to uh, move forward with verification and compliance of any agreement. Um, you know, we saw the stuff that came out of the Israelis uh, were able to get their hands on in 2018, uh, a treasure trove of information. There are currently four sites in Iran uh, that the Iranians are not uh, coming, being forthwith about, uh, the IAEA. Um, and it, it leaves us to draw conclusions about its real intentions, which I unfortunately, once again, I believe are maligned. Uh, the deal didn't moderate Iran's aggression. Uh, one hope is that the nuclear agreement would moderate Iran's conduct by reducing its international isolation. It hasn't. It still supports international terrorism, supports Yemeni Houthi rebels, paramilitary units in Iraq, the Assad regime in Syria, and its continuing threat to Middle Eastern maritime and regional security. Uh, and I think if you read the worldwide threat assessment that came out yesterday, the unclassified version, the intelligence community, they talk about Iran as a cyber threat, including the 2020 elections in the United States, and probably elsewhere too, but this dealt with the United States. Let us not forget that while the JCPOA remains in effect, even though the United States left, there are still a number of other parties to this, France and the UK and Germany and China and Russia, Iran continues to violate it and has done so and increasingly violates it. Um, it's, it's low enrichment uranium stockpiles are you know, 12 to 14 times what are allowed under the JCPOA. Uh, they've increased uranium enrichment. It's limited to 3.67%, uh, which would be could be used for low enriched uranium for a reactor. And now they're they're 20%. Now they're talking about going to, to 60%. Uh, they've started deploying advanced uranium enriching centrifuges. They were supposed to be using IR1s, which are basic uh, Iranian centrifuges, but they have you know twos, fours, fives, and sixes, and they're developing one that's an IR9 that may be 50 times more efficient. Uh, than the, the IR-1. They're also exceeding the total number of centrifuges allowed at Natanz and as well as Fardo. Um, and they're, um, they've expanded the locations for uranium enrichment. Uh, it was supposed to be at Natanz and now they're doing it at Fardo, which is uh, was only meant for research and, and development. And then recently, a, a month or two ago, they, they were accused of producing uranium metal. Uh, which uh, among a limited number of uses can be used in a nuclear uh, weapon core. Um, and of course, all this has potential to reduce the nuclear breakout time. Uh, the breakout time is a period that it takes to produce enough fissile material for a bomb starting right now. Uh, the JCPOA thought that would be about a year under the restrictions placed upon Iran. Of course, that would expire in 2025, going back to the sunset. Uh, but um, you know, Iran has already moved to 20% enrichment, which uh, a lot of physicists will tell you is about 90% of the effort in getting to weapon-grade uranium. Um, it's just really that's the one that the most difficult steps is getting to that is getting to that 20%, and then you, it's really much easier after after that point. Um, so I got to say that Iran's, and I think others agree that Iran's breakout time has shortened because of all of these violations of the JCPOA. We don't know exactly by how much but it could be much shorter and some people are speculating i mean some people have speculated and i think david albright might be one of them and said it's uh, down to about three what three months uh, i won't i won't use i think that's what david said but don't quote me on that yes and check david out on the on his in his work but i think that's what they're that's what they're talking about and of course iran wants us to worry about this as these talks go on um beyond nuclear issues the deal does not address ballistic missiles this is another thing 
And while exact numbers are difficult to figure out regarding Iran's uh, missile arsenal, the Defense Intelligence Agency tells us it has the largest missile arsenal in the Middle East, and there's no reason to doubt that. They're talking about you know, 50 medium-range ballistic missile launchers and 100 uh, short-range ballistic missile launchers. And those are only launchers. That doesn't include reloads or the missiles. You can, you can have more than one missile per launcher. Uh, and some people think that Iran may have several hundred uh, missiles that are available in the short and medium range uh, capability. Uh, and these can go out to 2,000 kilometers from Iran's borders, which would include all of the Middle East, parts of South Asia, and parts of Southeastern Europe, which would include, some, I believe, some NATO, NATO countries. Iran, we're not only talking about ballistic missiles, which obviously are a concern when you talk about nukes, but we're also talking about cruise missiles. And if you want to add into that, unmanned combat aerial vehicles or armed armed drones. Um, these allow Iran to project Iranian power and influence throughout the region and compensating for Iran's longstanding lack of conventional air power. Indeed, its cruise missile, its missile programs arguably come to play a central role in advancing Iran's ambitions in the Middle East. And of course, we can't forget about it. It was mentioned previously by the Congressman and, and Roger, I believe, but we can't remember that we saw 10 Iranian missiles uh, fly into attack the An al-Assad base in Iraq, which injured a significant number of US troops uh, posted there just a little over a year ago. Elsewhere, Saudi Arabia has endured nearly 900 ballistic missile and armed drone attacks <clears throat> from the Houthi rebels in Yemen who are being supplied by Iran. Uh, they've also seen attacks out of Iraq into Saudi Arabia by Iranian back to paramilitary units. Um, Unfortunately, the JCPOA, as we all know, didn't capture Iran's development of, of these missiles or any other types of missiles. Iran's space program is also of tremendous concern. The IRGC has now put a military spy satellite into space. And unfortunately, as we, as rocket scientists know, uh, the, 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 there isn't much difference between a space launch vehicle for a satellite and a space launch vehicle for an ICBM. So a lot of people are concerned that Iran is actually developing an ICBM program under the guise of a civilian and military uh, program. Uh, another thing gets worse, and I'd really like to hear Bruce say a few things about this, but there was an, a UN report out in February that Iran and North Korea are cooperating again on long-range missiles. There's always been concerned about nuclear cooperation. There's not much in the public sphere about this, and even space. Uh, but if you're able to, if these two are cooperating together at some level, it certainly could speed up Iran's program because North Korea is obviously in a position, as Bruce well knows, uh, to uh, you know to to help them if they wish to do so and have the capability to advance Iran's programs. And this outside assistance can make a huge difference in a proliferation in a proliferation problem. Um, you know, in fact, I'm going to quote David. He's not here, but I did see something in the Wall Street Journal the other day from him, which I thought was very interesting, kind of summing it up. He said that Iran could explode, it wasn't a quote, but it was a paraphrase, could explode a test device within nine months, build a basic nuclear weapon in a year, and affix a warhead to a ballistic missile in two years. Uh, so that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty frightening. Uh, in closing, you know, stopping Iran from developing a nuclear weapon, which I believe is Iran's strategic intent, I just can't get away from this is a clear national security imperative for the United States. Um, so too is preventing Iran from developing the means to deliver these weapons to potential targets in the region or beyond, including the United States. Nor can the US ignore Iran's conventionally armed missiles as a significant threat to America's national interests and those of our US allies and partners in the Middle East. Unfortunately, failing to deal with Iran's nuclear threat, which is what we're trying to do in, in Vienna, 
hopefully confidently and comprehensively through diplomacy and its growing missile arsenal will only elevate the risk of crisis and conflict in the region. So thank you very much. Great, thanks Pete. That was uh, a very helpful summary of uh, the Iranian threat. Um, so now finally over to Tom. Well, thank you, Patty Jane. Uh, and I'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Tarnar for his leadership on these issues and, uh, and Roger uh, for co-hosting today. Now, you know, we're at a, we're at a particularly important moment uh, for the question of countering missile threats. And the, the shift signaled by the national defense strategy and the recent service operating concepts, that shift is now gonna be put to the test. Uh, as the Pentagon tries to birth the new joint warfighting concept and make some other tough choices about force structure. And along the way, there's gonna be some birthing pains, getting out and getting accepted, both the joint warfighting concept and the long-awaited masterpiece of budget realignment. Now, the title of this panel presupposes a focus on rogue state ballistic missile threats. The somewhat contrarian question I'll pose today is to what extent it makes sense for US missile defense efforts to remain so relatively focused on that particular category. It's been a long time since the 1990s when rogue state ballistic missiles and WMD were all the rage. Think back to the 98 Rumsfeld report to the national intelligence estimates when uh, their prediction of a rogue state ICBM by 2015 was only off by uh, a couple of years as it turned out. It's also now been almost 17 years since the initial defensive capability of GMD back in 2004. Over the course of the last three administrations, Bush, Obama, and Trump, Homeland Ballistic Missile Defense has proceeded on a fairly steady linear path. The Bush administration chose not to pursue block improvements, instead opting for capacity. The Obama administration originally held off, but soon thereafter moved to field an additional 14 GBIs by 2017. In general, capacity over capability. A capacity boost of 20 GBIs was also the Trump administration's uh, initial inclination. As of last month, we have for the first time in a long time pursued a different course, favoring the long-term development of capability over short-term capacity building. Now that's all been fine and well and necessary in what you might call the post-Cold War period, but we're in a different period now. Although the return of strategic competition with near peers began in earnest maybe five, eight years ago, wasn't really announced until that 2018 NDS. And as the NDS said, it's the central challenge of our time. When the 2019 Missile Defense Review was released, it was prefaced with the comment that the degree and urgency of change required to restore missile defense and conventional overmatch must not be underestimated. Notwithstanding that statement, Neither the budgets, programs, or policy documents of the past few years have come anywhere close to realizing that degree of change. And despite acknowledging the change threat environment, uh, the last Missile Defense Review retained a focus on rogue state BMD. As I've said before, the 2019 MDR and the associated budgets were insufficiently aligned with the NDS rather than nested within it. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying what is sometimes said, that the Trump administration's but budgets and policy documents fell short of the aspirations expressed by President Trump's own speech about intercepting any missile anytime from anywhere. Those are good words, but perhaps somewhat counterproductive when they're not backed up by uh, budgets and programs. Now, a point is something more fundamental, that the insufficiency and misalignment of our past missile defense efforts 
have been because of their focus on rogue state ballistic missiles. In short, the Trump administration's missile defense approach did not break China. You may like it or not, but the decisions that were made, the delays that were imposed, and other activities have brought us now to this point where we can no longer continue with business as usual. And the Biden administration now faces a sharp reality, how to really and truly adapt our missile defense and defeat efforts to the central challenge of our time. This realignment will require dramatic change. It may in part require us to accept and manage greater risk from the likes of North Korea and Iran in order to get after other missile problems. Just as Russia and China would be quite happy for us to be bogged down uh, in the Middle East forever, so too they would probably be happy for U.S. missile defense efforts to remain focused on rogue state ballistics. The 2019 MDR reaffirmed that the United States would continue to rely upon deterrence in terms of major ICBM attack from the likes of Russia and China. I don't see that changing anytime soon. The next generation interceptor is now moving forward and that's good, but it's going to take time to get there. In the meantime, today's strategic and threat environment calls out for a regional focus, but unlike the regional focus of the past, this one would be against different actors. This means changes to our policy and to programs. It may mean moving air defenses out of the Middle East and to Asia. The next policy review might tackle this by focusing on the broad air and missile defense threat and the relationship between high-end BMD and counter UAS and air defense. It has to be more comprehensive and integrated, but not just by repeating the word integrated over and over. It means like MDA and service programs need to be thought about together and put together. Things like SHORAD, IBCS, and IFPIC, and other elements of cruise missile defense can't be omitted as they were from past reviews. This is not an endorsement of abandoning the Homeland BMD mission, far from it. NGI is underway and we must continue to prioritize GMD uh, life extension programs and other reliability improvements as the Senate uh, defense appropriators have signaled in recent years. That must continue. Rather, now that we're on the other side of NGI awards, we had the time to go back and backfill these regional air and missile defense efforts, especially those to, tailored to the likes of China. So what are the components of such an approach? Permit me to suggest five. The first is an unabashed focus on regional air and missile defense. Think about the setbacks to Homeland BMD over the last few years as something of a silver lining and an opportunity. When we work, while we work to get NGI right, and its research and development is underway, we have an opportunity to go do the regional and thick air and missile defense and defeat activities like we mean it. The second category would be sensors. In testimony for her nomination hearing to be deputy secretary, Dr. Kath Hicks highlighted sensors and discrimination as a particular area of emphasis, and that strikes me as exactly right. Of particular importance here are elevated sensors, in particular, the space sensor layer, but also fixed wing and lighter than air platforms. In terms of the sensor payload for the hypersonic and ballistic uh, tracking uh, sensor system, HBTSS, it'd be important to keep that in the Missile Defense Agency and also to keep on track for tranche zero and tranche one and then keep them focused on a regional issue, which is to say Indo-PACOM. Third is really that uh, applying that regional re renaissance to certain key assets in the, in the Pacific, 
think Guam, the Pacific, the, the, the fleet, uh, air bases and the like. The Army surely needs to do more on air base defense, and there's some force structure decisions within the Army uh, that, that might reflect that rebalance. Fourth, let's stop talking about missile defense as the paradigm and reference point for our policy reviews and instead talk about missile defeat. Fifth and finally, the missile defeat efforts will require substantial long-range fires, hypersonic, but also the garden variety supersonic and subsonic coming from multiple domains. And yes, multi-domain fires include ground-based fires. This is not Desert Storm, and we're not up against Saddam Hussein's Iraq or some other rogue state. Those fires should include the Army and Marines to truly present multiple dilemmas for the high-end adversary. Now, let me just uh, conclude by saying that missile defense has for far too long been a kind of boutique or niche issue. It cannot and must not be so any longer. In this missile-rich threat environment, countering all of these threats has to be part of our overall deterrence and defense goals. And to do so, we must retain, uh, renew our focus on regional air and missile threats from great powers. It's not gonna be easy, but you'll only know that we're doing it we're only that that realignment is happening when we begin to be uncomfortable about leaving assets undefended in the Middle East. And to accept and manage the risk of rogue state ICBM attack on the homeland until the next generation intercepts, uh, interceptor arrives. These steps will be uncomfortable but necessary to align our missile defense and defeat efforts to what is, after all, the central challenge of our time. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Um, so I'm going to jump right into some questions. We actually have a great audience question um, for you, Tom, that, that I'll ask while we still have your, your thoughts fresh in our minds. Um, so the question is, we've spent a lot of effort um, trying to assure China and Russia that our regional missile defenses are not aimed at them. They're, they're for North Korea and Iran, we, we keep telling them. And that's because Russia and China consider U.S. missile defenses to be a major threat to their offensive capabilities. Uh, so how do you think Russia and China would react to your uh, proposed policy shift and how should the U.S. manage uh, any potential complaints? Hmm. So in some respects, uh, what I'm suggesting is to make explicit and then put budgets and programs behind what has often been implicit. Going back, for instance, to the Obama administration's caveat that our homeland missile defenses were not about Russia and China, but they never said anything about our, our regional uh, efforts. And so, of course, we've never said that. It's really a function of doing more there and backing it up. Uh, so what I would suggest is that uh, we, we be explicit about that. Uh, we suggest and we hope that every single day uh, China wakes up and thinks that it would be a bad day to attack not just the American homeland, but to attack other, our allies and U.S. forces in the region. We want to preclude the escalation and, and preclude the big fight. But we also need to make sure that there's a mix of offensive fires, more of them in the region, uh, but also those defensive fires, those air defenses to complicate the surveillance and targeting job of the bad guys and to slow things down. That makes sense. In our um, our part one of this event series last week, we heard from our panelists um, a lot on how Russia and China are really advancing their uh, regional nuclear threats. So I, I, think, I think that proposal makes sense. Um, so one more, I'm gonna gonna stick with you, Tom. One more question on kind of this this issue area. In, in your remarks, you made the recommendation that the Biden administration so pursue a pivot, uh, this pivot to emphasize regional missile defense. 
Um, but given the growing threat from North Korea, um, especially that we heard from Bruce, is that really the wise thing to do? Look, this is about managing risk. Uh, this is about managing risk and dealing with risk and dealing with the consequences of past decisions and past actions and past consequences. Uh, the choice uh, in the last several years to cancel the redesigned kill vehicle uh, was a choice and the way in which it was done uh, had a cost and that cost is measured primarily in time. And that's kind of where we are right now and why we are on the path to a, a next generation interceptor. So. Uh, yes, we, we need to be focused on the, the rogue states as well, but I would also suggest that we, we can't keep up the op-tempo of bouncing our Patriot forces around the Middle East. Thankfully, we've been boosting our partner capacity. Think the King, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, and lots of other folks in the Middle East, in Europe, and elsewhere. That's all for the good. And now, if we're going to be uh, serious about pivoting or, or, or focusing on uh, the big threats, then we're going to have to make force structure decisions and we're going to have to make uh, posture decisions like we mean that. And so is it is it happy? No. Is it comfortable? No. But I think that if we're going to focus on Russia and especially China, uh, we're going to have to do less of these other things in terms of those decisions. Um, so I'd like to hear from Bruce on this next. Um, and in particular, um, Bruce, you recently co-authored a new uh, RAND report uh, on countering the risks of North Korean nuclear weapons. Um, and in it, it is predicted that North Korea could have more than 240 nuclear weapons by 2027, uh, which is pretty astounding to me. Um, so what effect might this have on U.S. interests and regional stability? And um, I'd also be curious to see if you have any reactions to uh, Tom's proposals. Well, on you know the number of nuclear weapons that North Korea has, uh, even within the intelligence community, it's a it's a series of best assessments. Uh, even with access to classified information, it's you're making a series of educated assessments or guesses, and then at the end coming up with a number, um, and you're never sure how accurate you are. Now, back in 2017, there were uh, leaked estimates by CIA and DIA of how much. Uh, weapons or fissile material North Korea may have. So the assessments ran from 30 to 60 nuclear weapons back in 2017. And it may have been a difference between CIA thinking they had 30 weapons and DIA thinking they had fissile material for 60. Um, but, you know, that was years ago. And also the uh, leaked estimate was that they could make 8 to 12 weapons worth of fissile material per year. So what we often tend to have is some, either the government will leak it or, or there will be a leak or an outside think tank will publish a number. And then we just tend to carry that number forward for years until someone updates it. So someone will say, well, yeah, but this think tank said 20. Well, that may have been 10 years ago. So if you think of 30 to 60, add eight to 12 weapons worth a year, you're already at a, at a pretty scary number. And then you just continue that. Um, you know, we, we know that there are facilities outside of the Yongbyon facility that are producing uh, uranium for a uranium-based weapon. So the number can be quite high. Uh, I think the concern that our allies have is as that number gets bigger and bigger, and as North Korea clearly has the ability to hit the continental U.S. with, with weapons, including hydrogen bombs, uh, that, you know, and as these new weapons have multiple warheads and, and as they sort of clearly demonstrate a re-entry vehicle at some point in the, in the future, 
the allies worry that you know we'll we'll cut them loose that it'll it'll decouple the alliance. And even years ago, when these issues were coming up, I, I sort of pointed out to our Asian allies that during the Cold War, we were willing to risk an estimated perhaps 100 million casualties in a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, uh, in essence, risking sacrificing New York, uh, Washington, and LA for Bonn, Paris, and London. So we have to ensure our allies that the extended deterrence guarantee is there. And the, that, that guarantee is not just uh, the nuclear umbrella uh, that people think of, it's also missile defense and it's also conventional forces. It's a three-part guarantee. So, uh, you know, that entails ensuring not only the capabilities, but also the assurances to both our allies and to our opponents that we will be there for um, our allies, that you can't divide us. So part of that, as Tom has pointed out, is, is the missile defense, so that if we can defend ourselves in the, in the American homeland, then there will be less uncertainty that we will come to our allies' defense if North Korea either does an attack on them with conventional or nuclear weapons, or is just uh, feeling encouraged to do coercive diplomacy. Gotcha. Um, and to that same- I was gonna ask um, Bruce, I haven't had a chance to read your report yet, but you know, there's been talk and we talked about it last week a little bit at the other event is that China is expected to double its nuclear arsenal in the next decade. Um, do, do, you have, do you have any sense that that could have something to do with North Korea? I mean, in the sense that does China feel that, you know, if, if there are 200 nuclear weapons today and they may have information or intelligence that says that North Korea is going to be moving in the direction of 240, that they also need to, I mean, I think it's multi causal but and you know in the united states and other things but it's just kind of interesting uh considering that uh, if that could be a driver of uh of china's uh, changes in china's arsenal as well besides the united states and great power competition etc right well my uh, my portfolio ends on the south side of the yalu river so i'll, I'll defer uh, on china to our colleague dean chang who is a, an eminent expert on, on china um but I, I think it would be more of uh, that Beijing's calculations are, are driven by its own sense of uh, competition with the U.S. or however you want to define it, um, really, as opposed to like, well, if North Korea is getting this, I'd better have more than the little guy next to me. Um, but, you know, that also brings up another point is the relationship between China and North Korea. A, a lot of people tend to think that China is very big and North Korea is very little and uh, therefore, especially because China is responsible for over 90% of North Korea's foreign trade, that, that China must control North Korea, must be dictating to North Korea what, it, what it's doing. Uh, and that's not the case. Uh, even during the, the heyday of the Cold War, when uh, North Korean relations with China and then Soviet Union were very good, little North Korea was able to play off the two communist superpowers against each other so that neither had a real influence over North Korea, as counterintuitive as that may seem. So North Korea's nuclear and missile programs are indigenous, uh, and they were uh, instigated by uh, North Korea's distrust of its allies, China and the Soviet Union. So they may get, uh, or we know they get technology and expertise and assistance from outside, and that's one of the reasons we have sanctions is to try to curtail or cut that off. Um, but it's not Moscow or Beijing saying, you know, here, here's a nuclear weapon design or here's a missile design. Uh, it's North Korea has been, you know, 
producing it themselves. So I, I think there would be less of a North Korean factor in Chinese strategic thinking than perhaps others might think. Great. Um, so sticking on North Korea, um, another question for Bruce. Uh, the Biden administration has said that its North Korea policy review will be concluded soon. I think you mentioned that in your opening remarks. Uh, do we have a sense of what might be in uh, or out of its likely policy and how different do you think it will be from uh, previous administrations? Uh, well, I, I covered some of it in the opening remarks, but um, you know, the Biden administration said it's going to be very new or different from every previous administration. You know, and really there's, I think, greater continuity amongst U.S. administrations uh, on North Korean policy than perhaps people depict it as. Um, no, no administration or, or president has a monopoly on good or bad ideas when it comes to North Korea. We've, we've tried eight international agreements on denuclearization. They've all failed. That's not to say we don't try a ninth. Um, but, you know, there are only so many tools in the toolbox. And, and each administration may prioritize or emphasize one over the other and even that may shift. I mean the Biden or I'm sorry the Bush administration started with a very confrontational policy and then it shifted to fairly conciliatory under the six party talk. So administrations may themselves have several uh, policies. We saw that with Trump where he's uh, you know bringing us closer to war on the Korean Peninsula uh, in 2017 than we had been since 1994, 1976 uh, and then having the the, the Singapore summit and uh, accepting a joint statement that was weaker than previous agreements. So, um, you know, I, I think we'll see, you know, but but Biden has not only said he's going to have a bottom-up approach, uh, but he's also, he and his officials are continuing to say denuclearization is the end goal. There, there's a debate amongst Korea watchers now about whether to maintain denuclearization as our goal, uh, and that's the requirement under 11 UN resolutions or accept arms control, sort of a lower level of, you know, goal, and, and we're debating it. Uh, I think there's some mischaracterizations or misunderstandings, because I think some depict denuclearization as kind of the John Bolton Libya model, where uh, North Korea has to give up everything before the U.S. gives anything, and, and that's not really the case. It would be incremental. So one debate we're having is, you know, what I would depict as uh, a hundred yard agreement implemented in five yard increments or a series of five yard agreements. I'm more in favor of a big comprehensive agreement like we had with the Soviet Union that I participated in, where, especially because we feel the other guys cheated many times, you define the parameters of the field, you define what a football is. I mean, right now we don't even agree on what the Korean Peninsula is or what the word denuclearization means. So you define the terms, you define you know, a very good verification protocol. Uh, you define what everyone's responsibilities, including the United States and what benefits we would provide. So, you know, I think if you don't know where the goal line is, you're never gonna get there. You know, others will, you know, but you, you will have to do that in increments. You don't destroy everything overnight or you don't give all the benefits overnight. Others will say, that's not gonna work. Let's do a small agreement. And when everyone is comfortable, we can do another one. That's a good debate we can have. But I think the Biden administration is still emphasizing uh, denuclearization. Uh, but as I pointed out before, there's still a lot of unknowns. The level of sanctions enforcement, uh, how much pressure they will impose, what benefits they might offer to North Korea. But the problem, not only now, but in previous administrations, 
is North Korea once again is refusing to talk. They won't even have a diplomat to diplomat meeting. Uh, and we saw, you know, that was also under the Trump administration after the October 2019 Stockholm meetings where they said they didn't even want to have any more of these disgusting negotiations at the working level. And then they didn't want to have any more summit meetings. So, you know, to negotiate, you got to, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them negotiate. You got to get them into the, the negotiating room to at least start talking about, you know, what do you mean by hostile policy? What do you mean by a security guarantee or a peace agreement, et cetera? In the last meeting, North Korea refused to even identify what they meant by certain terms. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's really useful. Um, so we have about 15 minutes left and a few uh, great audience questions um, on hold, but I want to make sure we touch on Iran a little bit. Um, so a couple questions for Pete. Um, first is about uh, recent news. R reports are indicating that the Israelis may have been behind an attack on the Natanz fuel enrichment plant. Um, what possible effect will the incident at Natanz have on Iran's nuclear program? Oh, fun. Thanks for the question on breaking news. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's, always, uh, it, it's always a challenge. We're still learning things, right? Uh, was this uh, you know, a cyber attack? Was it an inside job? Uh, you know, what is the extent of the damage? How quickly can the Iranians um, you know, repair what was going on there? Um, you know, U.S.-Israeli cooperation or non-cooperation or coordination or forewarning, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of things that are, that are going on there. I mean, obviously, this is Iran's main uranium enrichment plant, um, so it's critical. Uh, you know, 5,000 of the 6,000 centrifuges that they have spinning are at Natanz. Uh, it's been attacked before. Remember, there was a, a year or so ago, there was an attack um, against uh, a, uh, a building that was being used to build centrifuges at Natanz. It's obviously a, a critical element of the Iranian uh, nuclear program and of, of great concern to any number of countries, whether you're Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United States, uh, it's, it's a tremendous concern. So we're gonna have to see. Um, you know, some people are wondering if it'll have an effect on what happens. I mean, I haven't seen any news out of Vienna, which they're coming back today. Uh, the Iranians haven't said that they're not coming back. I suppose the shadow war between Israel and, and Iran continue. Um, I, I do kind of doubt that the, the Iranians, uh, I'm sorry, if it was the Israelis, and there is some reason to believe that, there's been some leaking in the news, but we don't, you know, they, the government has not claimed it. We've, we've seen some things when the Israelis are generally very quiet about these things. We've seen some former intelligence of Israeli intelligence officials making comments about this, which probably is meant to have a psychological effect on Iran. I mean, Iran must be kind of nervous right now about how this happened in a police state like this. How does something like this uh, happen? Remember what happened last fall with their chief uh, Iranian scientist? But I mean, I, I would think that, you know, that some people were concerned about that it happened when General Austin, or I'm sorry, Secretary of Defense Austin arrived in, in, in Israel. Uh, the talks were getting started. Uh, but, you know, these sort of operations usually take a little bit of time to put together. So I'm not sure if that was uh, if those are just coincidental just coincidences in that respect. But I think it probably pushes back their program. Uh, you know, even if they've got emergency power, it may have damaged some of the centrifuges. Remember, you know, Stuxnet was able to damage a lot of the Iranian centrifuges a, a long time ago. 
um, this in the cyber attack. Um, I would imagine it will uh, affect a, a breakout time, uh, depending. But once again, I'm just kind of speculating here because there's so much news and information coming in, and it's very difficult to comment on a dynamic situation uh, situation like that. Um, you know, like I said, um, we're just gonna we're just gonna have to see how the Iranians react. But as far as I know, they're still coming back to Vienna uh, to to talk. Maybe they're coming back to say we're leaving. <laughs> But uh, what I understand is that that will continue, but um, it certainly will have, uh, I think, if there was physical damage, that it certainly will have an effect on the Iranian nuclear program at this point. If I could bother you with one more piece of recent news. Oh. Um, the latest bit oh, here is that um, <laughs> Iran is now going to um, start enriching its, its other enrichment plan, I think now up to 60%. Um, how do you think that will impact, or I guess the combination of um, the damage at Natanz and now this new enrichment level will impact um, Iran's leverage against over the U.S. in uh, these negotiations? Well, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, this is what it's all, you know, Iran's been playing this game of, you know, nuclear chicken uh, with the United States and trying to increase, uh, they've got their own maximum pressure campaign going on, but it's nuclear as opposed to economic economic sanctions. Um, you know, they, they will do that. That will be probably done at Florida, which has the uh, more capable, fewer, but more capable um, uh, centrifuges. And that's where they're doing the 20% enrichment um, as opposed to Natan. So they probably can, uh, they probably can proceed with that. Um, you know, th this is uh, one of these sort of things. We'll have to see how quickly Iran moves um, other than talking about it. I mean, 60% enrichment had been Broached previously by Khamenei. I mean, he has said this before. I think last uh, winter he talked about this um, and uh, that it was a possibility. So, this the Iranians are doing any number of things to raise the temperature at these um, at these negotiations to get uh, to get concessions from the United States, and they just keep piling them on, which I think you know, shows their intent and a lack of, uh, and a lack of good, and a lack of goodwill on the part of the Iranian, uh, the uh, negotiating uh, delegation. So in our uh, remaining 10 minutes, I wanna make sure I take a couple of these great audience questions. Um, and to our audience, please continue submitting them if you have any more. Um, so this first question is for, I believe for Tom. Um, and it's how do you enhance U.S. homeland ballistic missile defenses that are essential to counter the threat posed by uh, North Korea and eventually Iran um, without antagonizing Russia? Mm. Uh, well, the, the good news here is that uh, notwithstanding the press releases from uh, Moscow uh, and Beijing, that, you know, the very small number, uh, 44 some GBIs up in Alaska, very small number we have up there, uh, it's not any uh, real threat to the 1,550 plus, uh, you know, uh, accountable warheads under under New START. Uh, and I'll be honest, uh, I, I think, frankly, the path that I kind of laid out here uh, in terms of focusing on regional air and missile defense against our near peers, uh, that's the sort of thing that's going to irritate them uh, more. Uh, but you can't really say it's about strategic stability. Right? They're going to have to come up with new press releases about why, uh, about for instance, why their regional air defenses are okay, uh, but the U.S. and our allies uh, enhancing ours is not. Uh, so, you know, just take a couple examples here. Uh, in the, in the past couple of years, I guess it was probably more like a decade ago, 
Uh, at one point, the Obama administration sent some Patriot missiles to uh, to Poland, although they were just a launcher, and I think at one point, at least, they didn't even have, have any interceptors aboard. Uh, but the Russians nonetheless made a, a big to-do about it, and they didn't, they didn't like that for political reasons, uh, but you can imagine military reasons as well. But the centerpiece of what we could and should be doing here that will not make China happy, but not for strategic stability reasons, got to get off that talking point, and that's the robust air and missile defense for places like Guam and the fleet uh, and other bases in Indo-PACOM. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Admiral Davidson, who said this, the commander of Indo-PACOM, who said that that 360-degree capability is his top priority for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. That, along with the utility of ground-based fires, you got a Navy guy, Admiral Davidson, who's endorsing ground-based long-range fires for the Army uh, and the Marines. Those are the kinds of things that, yes, they fit under the regional basket, but and they and they avoid the strategic stability canard that have for far too long burdened the missile defense conversation. We got to get out of those old ruts. We got to get rid of that intellectual baggage. And so, frankly, we have over the next eight, 10 years, while the next generation interceptor comes online, which will, after all, be a limited number of more capable and more reliable interceptors, but a limited number, still nowhere close to anything like strategic stability. But we have an opportunity to focus on the regional air and missile things like we mean it, but not just about the Iran and North Koreas, but also about the, uh, the especially the, the China thing. So different approaches to Guam, distributed elements, distributed operations on Guam for East Ashore and, and, and other places, integration of offensive and defensive means to counter these threats, that's the centerpiece. And you can't really say that that's about strategic stability or, or it would disrupt strategic stability in a bad way anyway. Great, I think that that's really useful and makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, next audience question is from um, William King of the, the Booz Allen Hamilton organization and it's for Bruce. Um, what are the prospects of US-China cooperation and planning for North Korean uh, denuclearization? Uh, do you think we can succeed without China's cooperation? Well, some would say the chances are slim to none and Slim just rode out of town. Um, well, you know, we, we do need to incorporate you know, other nations around North Korea. And I think at some point we do need to multilateralize the, the engagement with North Korea on uh, the nuclear program. Um, you know, one of the reasons President Bush pushed for six party talks is because our allies complained that we were, uh, in the words of the South Korean president, negotiating their security over their heads. So we need to have them in the room. You know, on the other hand, people who participated in the six party talks said the most progress was when the US and North Korea went for a cup of coffee and actually worked things through and brought them back to the group. Um, but what we've seen over the years is China has tended to be more part of the problem than part of the solution. Uh, usually what happens is after North Korea does something very provocative, a nuclear test or an ICBM test, you know, they will allow an incrementally stronger resolution. Um, so it's taken us 11 resolutions to get to where we are now. Um, and then they will usually enforce the sanctions for you know, three to four months. And then they will quietly turn a blind eye or allow uh, violations to occur in their waters or near their waters or on their soil. Um, and the U.S., through successive administrations, has tended not to, do, to go after the violations, including of U.S. law. So, you know, 
in previous administrations, we imposed seven to nine billion dollars in fines on British and French banks for money laundering for Iran. To date, we've imposed zero dollars in fines on Chinese banks for money laundering for North Korea. Uh, in 2017, the uh, U.S. Congress sent a list of 12 Chinese banks, including the four largest in the world. They sent the list to the, the Trump White House saying, we think they, these banks are committing money laundering crimes in the U.S. financial system on U.S. soil, and we've taken action against none of them. So there are things we can do. And when you go back to uh, the Banco Delta Asia issue in, in 2005, uh, it uh, not only led a North Korean official to tell a White House official, you finally found a way to hurt us, uh, but it even led the Bank of China to defy the government of China and cut off North Korea from access to Bank of China because they were fearful of being sanctioned themselves. Well, then we undid the, the Bank of uh, Banco Delta Asia issue and Bank of China went back to engaging with North Korea. So there are things we can do, even if not to influence the Chinese government, to influence the Chinese banks and businesses that are engaging with North Korea in violation of U.S. law and U.N. resolutions. Now, the sanctions, they're a tool. They're not a silver bullet, just as diplomacy is not a silver bullet. You need all of them, along with other uh, tools of national power, uh, in a comprehensive strategy. But, you know, we, we can try to reduce the Chinese banks and businesses that are engaging with North Korea uh, as a way of increasing pressure on Pyongyang, even if the Chinese government isn't willing to get on board. Great. Um, so we are uh, just about out of time at the end of our event here. Um, so unless our, our panelists have any final uh, comments or last words they, they want to make, um, I think we will conclude on that note. Um, so no final comments on behalf of Heritage and also the Reagan Institute, our partners. Um, I want to say thanks again to our panelists for joining us for this great discussion um, on these pressing issues. So, and thanks to our audience to, for joining us in this great event. And now we're adjourned.